Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. Here's kind of the idea for this morning. How you start matters. How you start matters. How many of you would say that you are a Star Wars fan? Just go ahead and raise up your hand if you like Star Wars. All right, so not, not a ton of you. Either that or you just don't want to admit it this morning. All right, and I get that. It's kind of nerdy. I get it. So a few years ago, um, the, the seventh Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens, was going to be coming out into, into theaters. And, and at that time, Abby and I, we were doing college ministry at a church, and, and so our college students said, we want to all go see the new Star Wars movie together. We thought, that sounds fun. When it comes out in theater, we're all going to go see it together. But the problem was, a lot of our students, and even Abby and, and I, hadn't really seen all of the movies, like in their entirety, and put all the pieces together with the story and all that. Like, of course, with pop culture and different things, like we were aware of the story and the Luke, I am your father thing. Like we knew that, but, but we didn't know the story. And so we decided we we're going to sit down as a group and we were going to watch these movies together. And then we were all going to go to the theater and we we're going to watch it. And it was going to be fun. But whenever you decide to do that, you're faced with a question. And that is, what order do you watch these movies in? Because there's six of them that comes before The Force Awakens, right? And they were released. I mean, the four, five, and six were released in, you know, the first one was released in 77. And then one, two, and three were years later, right? So they were, they were made at different times. And so the question is, is, is what order do you watch them in? Now, Star Wars purists or nerds would say that you were to watch them four, five, six, and then one, two, three, right? Um, normal people would say that you were to watch them in sequential order, which would be one, two, three, four, five, six. So I just want to take a poll. How many of you would say that you were supposed to watch the Star Wars movies four, five, six, one, two, three in release order? Okay, that's good. How many of you would say you were to watch them in sequential order, one, two, three, four, five, six? That makes the most sense. Anybody? Okay, a few. Ooh, we got some booze. <laughs> Passionate. How many of you would say, I don't care about Star Wars? Okay, yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting is how you choose to watch those movies uh, affects how you understand the story. And so it's, it's crazy. Like people, there's been articles and stuff like this about people who have, have, have watched them in different orders. So if you watch the movies in the release order, four, five, six, and then one, two, three, well, you're presented in episode four of this dark, monstrous character named Darth Vader. And, it's, and it just opens up, and he's slicing people up with this lightsaber, and you're like, this dude is a bad dude. You don't even find out till episode five, the next movie, that he's a human, right? And then in, whenever, in six, whenever the whole, like, Luke, I am your father thing happens, well, you have to muster up some compassion for this monstrous Darth Vader guy, right? But if you start watching the story in episode one, you're, you're introduced to a little boy named Anakin. And, and then the story becomes um, a story of tragedy as you watch this little boy grow up to, whenever you start episode four, you don't, you don't see this monstrous Darth Vader, you see 
a little boy trapped in this dark suit. Does that make sense? So where you start matters. That's, that's the whole point. As we start the book of Mark today, Mark totally understands that principle. You've got to start on the right page in the story to understand the characters and what's happening in the book. And so what he's doing in Mark chapter 1 is he is introducing us to Jesus. All right, and he's saying, you've got to understand who Jesus is. You've got to start on the right page. You've got to understand who he is and what he's all about from page number one. If you've ever started like a new Netflix show or something like that, and you watch the pilot episode and you're like, wait, who is that guy and why are they important and all that? Mark's not leaving that up for debate here. He wants you to know very clearly who Jesus is. He's the main character. It's all about him. So as we jump into this, just a little bit about the book of Mark. Mark is, is probably the first gospel account that was written of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark was the first. Mark was a guy, you first see him come on the scene in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. He's the cousin of Barnabas, and he travels with Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Peter on their missionary journeys. This is who this guy is. His name is actually John Mark, more than likely. And he is, uh, he, he's, again, he's on those missionary journeys with these guys. Some people will say that, that Mark uh, wrote down the stories that Peter was telling him about Jesus, right? So it could be called the gospel according to Peter in some, in some ways. But what's interesting is this book is fast. It's a short book. It's only 16 chapters long. Mark is, uh, he, he's in a hurry to tell you a story, right? He uses the word immediately, 41 times in this book. He'll say immediately this happened and then immediately that happened. You know, he's just trying to get you to it because he wants you to, he wants you to see the main point. And so what that means is, is, is the chapters are shorter. He, he's not going to get into a lot of dialogue. It's more about action than it is about speaking. And, uh, and when he does give details, they're probably important. Okay. That's a little bit about, about reading Mark. Before we jump in and read our passage, I'd love for us just to pray and ask the Lord to speak to us. So I'll pray for all of us. You pray for yourself. Ask God to speak to you in this moment. God, would you speak to us? Um, we don't want to hear my words. We want to hear directly from you. And so, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate this text? Would you help us to see clearly and accurately the person of Jesus Christ? Would you help us to see who he is and what he's come to do for us and what that means for our lives and how we are to yield to him. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so Mark chapter 1, start in verse 1. We're going to read 13 verses. And again, just keep this idea in mind. How you start matters. Mark wants you to know Jesus. He's introducing you to Jesus. So if you're new to church, you've come on a good day because we're going to meet Jesus here. Verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. 
I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Here is Jesus, the main character. He's on the scene. And he was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Immediately, there's that word, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. I want to I show you in this passage the way that Mark starts this book, introducing you to the main character of Jesus. I want to show you three things that, that, he, that he tells us about who Jesus is. Number one, in the first eight verses, we see that he is the promised one. He's the promised one. Verse one starts by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So this is, the gospel means good news. In fact, the way that this reads is a lot like um, it's a royal type of announcement. It's the way that new kings or princes that were born, whenever they were born, this is the kind of announcement that would go out. This is the good news that the one has come. And essentially what Mark is doing here is he's saying the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one that you've waited for. See, throughout the Old Testament, it's promising the coming of a deliverer, of a savior, of word that's, that's, that's used as the Messiah, all right? Isaiah chapter nine, verse six is a perfect example of one of these uh, foretellings of the one that will come. It says this, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. What Isaiah just said is there's one who's coming. A baby's going to be born and he's going to be God in the flesh. He's going to reign and rule on the throne of David forever and ever and ever. That's what he just said. And so the Old Testament points us to that person again and again and again. And Mark just said in verse one, he's here. The Messiah, the one that you've waited for, the promised one, he is here. Now, before you get to meet him, though, in verse 9, first we meet the promised messenger. Verses 2 and 3, it talks about how in the Old Testament, just like that Isaiah passage I just read you, there are also passages that talk about one who is going to come as, as the proclaimer of the Messiah. He, it's, it's a word that's, uh, it's the word herald. And it's common in ancient times, especially with kings and things like that. There would be one who would come before the king. They would prepare the roads and make sure it's safe and make sure it's clear and all that. And then whenever the king would enter, the herald would walk in and proclaim it loudly. The king is here. And that's what John the Baptist is doing. It, see, Mark introduces us to this character, uh, this odd character, really, before we even meet Jesus, we first meet John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. He's wearing camel fur and eating locust and honey. And it's kind of a weird picture, right? Basically, he, he's showing us that he is the last Old Testament prophet, the one that's gonna come and he's gonna proclaim Jesus to us. And he is that herald. He's the one that's proclaiming the Messiah, right? 
And so that's, that's who John the Baptist is. And what he's doing is he's out in the wilderness and he's calling people to repentance and baptism in Christ. He, he's calling them to repent of their sin and turn to, towards the one that's coming, right? Again, he's, he's the herald. He's pointing them to the Messiah. See, John understands who Jesus is. In fact, in, in, in the Gospel of John, a uh, different guy, not John the Baptist, but John the Baptist says, whenever he sees Jesus coming in this, in this scene that's about to happen with his baptism, John says, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. See, John understood that the Messiah, the, the promised one, was coming after him. Like, he was not the, the main character of, of the show. He understood his place. Look at verse 7. John the Baptist said, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is saying he is different altogether. Like you're coming out in the wilderness to be baptized by me, but really he's the one that you need to look to. He is the promised savior. He is the one that, that, that we need. I'm nobody compared to him, John the Baptist says. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. One of my favorite verses is John chapter three, verse 30. And that's John the Baptist saying that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. See, John got it. He was the promised messenger, the promised herald that would come before the Messiah. And he spent his whole life just in awe and surrender to God and just pointing people to the coming Messiah. That's his role. That's his task in scripture. All right. So, so Mark wants us to see through John the Baptist as the promised messenger that Jesus is the promised one that you've been waiting for, right? And then in verse nine, we get to meet him. The second thing that we see that Mark is, is telling us about Jesus is that he is the son of God. So he's the promised one and he is the son of God. Look at verse nine again. Let me just, let me just read this to you. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. The Jordan River is a river that is, it connects the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And on the west side of the Jordan River is all the civilization, Jerusalem, Jericho, and all the places that are in the Bible. On the east side of the Jordan River is what's called the wilderness. We'll get there in just a second, all right? So he's, he's baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So here he is. Mark is introducing us to the main character of the rest of this book. Jesus is now on the scene. And what's interesting is Mark doesn't start uh, the same way that Matthew and Luke do in their gospels. How do they start? They start with the, the birth story, right? Which would make sense if you're talking about a story about someone's beginning is to start with their birth. And that's what Matthew and Luke do. But, but Mark doesn't do that. He starts with this baptism scene. Why? Well, his baptism scene teaches us a lot about who he is. It's important. It's like the anointing moment for his ministry, why he's come. This is, this is the important stuff is what Mark is saying here. Again, he just wants to get you to the important stuff. And so we're here at the, at the baptism of Jesus. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was baptized? Have you ever, have you ever thought about that? 
I mean, we're baptized. We had a baptism in the first service. We're baptized as a symbol of, of the fact that we are now a follower of Jesus. That's what baptism is. Baptism doesn't save us, but baptism is just a symbol that we have made a decision to trust Jesus, to repent of our sin, turn to him, and trust him as our Savior. And then we're dunked in water, symbolizing his death and being raised to new life in him. That's what baptism is. But Jesus doesn't need that, does he? Jesus doesn't need repentance. Jesus doesn't need salvation. So what's happening? Well, the thing to understand is Jesus' baptism is not repentance, it's revelation. It's showing us who he is. What's it revealing about him? Look at verse 10 again. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This reveals a couple of things to us. First, it reveals that he is God. He is God. In this passage, you see the Spirit of God descending from heaven. You hear the voice of God speaking, the, the voice of God the Father speaking in heaven. And then the voice says, my son. So what you have is you have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Spirit all represented in this scene. This is, this is the doctrine of what we call the Trinity, all right? Now, I can't uh, properly, probably explain to you in full detail what the Trinity is, and you can't either, but we see it right here, okay? As clearly as any place in Scripture, at Jesus' baptism, we see all three persons of the one God. We see the Father, Son, and Spirit all here, the triune God. Now, there's a, there's a thinking out there, and it's a heresy called modalism that, that says or believes that God exists uh, at different times in different modes, all right? So uh, th they, would, they would say that in the Old Testament, that was God existing in the mode or in the form uh, of, of Yahweh, of God the Father. In the Gospels, God exists in the form of Jesus. But in Acts, after Jesus ascends into heaven, then God uh, exists in the mode or in the form of the Holy Spirit. That's heresy. That's not right, <laughs> right? We see right here that there are three distinct persons of one God, okay? Father, Son, and Spirit, all seen right here. And the point that Mark is saying is Jesus belongs right there in that equation. He's not some random Jewish man. He is God in the flesh, okay? That's the point that he's making. And then he says that this, re this reveals to us that he is the beloved Son, says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So the voice from heaven speaks when Jesus comes up out of the water, and, it, and, and the voice quotes Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Both of these are messianic prophecies that, that refer to the coming Messiah as son, all right? That the Spirit will rest on, on him. So we're seeing Jesus' identity here. He is the son of God. Essentially what God the Father says from heaven is, you are my son, I love you, and I'm proud of you. Now, this isn't the main point of this text, but I think it is very applicable for us. I tell my kids all the time, almost to the point of being annoying, I'm sure, that I love you and I'm proud of you. I tell them that all the time. 
I love you and I'm proud of you. My youngest son, Ames, if I just say to him, hey, buddy, guess what? He'll go, you love me. I'm like, that's right, I do. And I don't ever want you to forget that, right? Don't ever want you to forget that. So again, sub point here. But dads, do you realize how powerful it is for you to tell your kids that you love them and that you're proud of them? I mean, explicitly say that, verbally say that. Don't leave it implied, like, yeah, they know I love them. But like, say it. There are studies, um, in fact, one that was just done this year by the Children's Bureau that shows us, statistics show us, that kids that feel a closeness to their dad, all right, they feel a closeness to their dad are twice as likely to enter college or find stable employment after high school as those who don't feel close to their dad. Kids that feel a closeness with their dads are 75% less likely to have a teen birth. They're 80% less likely to spend time in jail and half as likely to experience multiple depression symptoms. So if nothing else than a psychological and a statistical point here, dads, tell your kids, I love you and I'm proud of you. Tell them that daily to the point of being annoying. Like don't leave it assumed. And maybe you're sitting there going, yeah, I've, I had a great dad. I know that he loves me or he did love me. I know that he was proud of me. Or maybe you're sitting there going, no, I don't have that kind of dad. My dad never told me that he loved me. He never told me how he was proud of me. Or maybe you're going, I've never even met my dad. The good news of, of, of Jesus, the good news that's offered to you is as a, as a child of his, when you place your trust in him and you become a child of the heavenly father, He looks at you through the lens of Jesus and he says these same words to you. You are my son, you are my daughter, I love you and I'm proud of you, right? That is the offer that's extended. And so that's what the voice says to Jesus here at his baptism scene. I I love you, I'm proud of you, you're my son. But but, But Mark includes the word beloved son. That's interesting. You're my beloved son, which that word does carry connotations of affection, means loved, but it also means the one and only. The one and only son, which is interesting because in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter four, God calls Israel his son. In 2 Samuel chapter seven, God calls King David his son. But here he's saying, my beloved, my only son. It's the same way that... um, that God refers to Abraham's son, Isaac, in Genesis chapter 22. You remember the story of Abraham and Isaac and, and how, how God had promised Abraham, this old man and his wife who, who were past the age of having children, God promised them kids, promised them a son. And then he shows up and they name him Isaac. And in Genesis chapter 22, verse two, God says, I want you to take your son, your only son, and go and sacrifice him. Right? You, you remember this story. And so Abraham takes his son Isaac and they go up on the mountain and, and, and Abraham's about to sacrifice his son because God had led him to do that. And instead, God stops him. He provides a ram that's stuck in the thorns there. And the verse says, and God looked at him and said, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold from me your son, your one and only son. See, God stopped him and he didn't sacrifice his 
his only son. And, and the point here that's being made is whenever Jesus goes and he is the only son of God and he goes to the cross and he dies in our place, now we, like God told Abraham, we are able to look at God and say, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold from me your son, your one and only son. See, this beloved only son of God was born to die. He was born to die. And that's where we'll get in Mark chapter 15 in this series. There's another interesting word that, that comes into play in the baptism scene. And it's, it's the word that Mark uses. It's torn. He says that the heavens were torn open. That's interesting language, isn't it? Like, that's an interesting detail. I told you, whenever, whenever Mark includes detail, pay attention to it. The only other time that that word, torn, is used in the book of Mark it's only used one other time, and it's in Mark chapter 15 at Jesus' crucifixion scene whenever it talks about the, the curtain in the temple being torn from top to bottom in two. It's this passage, Mark chapter 15, verse 37. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing opposite him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. So what you have is Mark showing us these bookend moments at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and at the cross. At his, at his baptism, God from heaven says, this is the Son of God. And at the cross, this Roman centurion non-believer says, surely this is the Son of God. Because the, the temple uh, veil was torn, the heavens are torn open at his baptism scene. And through what Jesus came to do, the point is clear that access to heaven is now granted. If something is torn, it can't be put back together very easily, right? The heavens are torn open at Jesus's anointing moment of his baptism. So we see Jesus is the promised one. He's the son of God. And then finally, number three, that he is the champion in battle. He's the champion in battle. Read these next two verses with me, verse 12 and 13. Immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. This scene, like we've been introduced to the main character and who he is, that he's the son of God, that he is God, that he's, he's beloved, he's the only one. And now this scene tells us what he came to do. And what he came to do is he came to enter into battle. See, that's what Mark wants us to see. That's the scene that he's painting. It's a battle. Verse 12 says, immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. Like, do you see the urgency that's there? There's a lot of urgency in those words. Like if this were, were being told as a movie and we're watching this after Jesus' baptism, he comes up out of the water and we hear the voice and then immediately the spirit drives him out into the wilderness. Like there would be suspenseful music that's being played right now. Like Jesus didn't just sit around at his baptism scene and, and celebrate his baptism with some cupcakes and stuff like that, which I think is a fine thing to do. Uh, but Jesus didn't have the luxury. He doesn't get to just sit and revel in the fact that, that the voice from heaven just called me son of God. Immediately, he goes out into the wilderness to meet head on what he came to do. Like he came to this earth on a rescue mission to take care of business, and he immediately heads out to face it head on. 
Like in the other accounts, in Matthew and Luke, the temptation of Jesus scene is, um, it's different. I mean, it's, it's, it's Jesus is, is out there and there's a lot of dialogue between Satan and Jesus and Satan says, if, if you're hungry, turn these stones into bread, right? And Jesus says, don't tempt the Lord your God. And, and then there's a, the part about Satan trying to get him to jump off the temple. Like I would encourage you, go read Matthew and Luke's account of this temptation scene. But Mark doesn't tell it that way. Like he tells it completely differently. He's setting up this battle type of scene. He talks about that he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. So the scene of the battle is the wilderness, right? It's east of the Jordan. This is where if you're a Bible reader, like immediately like some things start to go off in your mind whenever you hear wilderness and 40, right? This is where the Israelites were for 40 years, wandering around before they were able to enter into the promised land through the Jordan River, by the way. Out in the wilderness, Moses passes off the torch to Joshua and Joshua enters into the promised land through the Jordan. Several hundred years later, a guy named Elijah passes off the torch to a guy named Elisha. Out in the wilderness, Elisha passes through the Jordan River back over into the promised land to rid the land of idolatry. Now what you see is John the Baptist out in the wilderness passing off the torch to Jesus and he's gonna enter back through the Jordan River to go into his earthly ministry. Like this is an intentional type of, of scene. And just as the Israelites wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years and, and they succumbed to the temptation and they, a lot of it was, was hunger pangs and different things like that, Jesus isn't going to, to give in to the temptation. We know that from Matthew and Luke. And so it's, there is truth in this, that, that the only way to overcome the temptation in your life is to trust in the only one who overcame it. But that's not the point that Mark's making. Like, that is true, 100%. But whether or not Jesus gave in to the temptation isn't even brought up here. Like, we know that he doesn't from Matthew and Luke. Again, Jesus is sinless and he's perfect and he is, he's the spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That is true. But Mark almost seems to think that's a given. Instead, he wants us to see the battle. There's an emphasis here on this battle or this clash between Jesus and Satan. He talks about the wild animals and the angels. He's the only one that does that in the Synoptic Gospels. He's the only one that mentions these animals being out there. So what's happening with that? Well, throughout the Bible, wild animals and beasts is used to represent evil and judgment and danger. And so clearly what we see is there's this, there's this scene being painted of Jesus in one corner and Satan and the wild, wild beast and wild animals in the other corner and Jesus coming to meet him head on. That's what Jesus came to do. We've all seen um, like the, the, the pictures and the promo stuff that will happen before a boxing match, right? And they bring the two fighters together and they're standing there face to face and they've weighed in and they're within pounds of each other and they've got a similar amount of experience and their fight, like it's a good matchup, right? You've seen that. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is in no way comparable to Satan. They're not on even playing ground. That analogy breaks down here because Satan is nowhere close to Jesus. Like, they're not the good guy and the bad guy in a superhero movie that you're watching and you're wondering and you're biting your nails wondering who's going to win. This is an uneven fight. 
It's completely unfair. It's lopsided. But Satan is too stupid to realize he shouldn't even step into the ring. See, Jesus is the champion who comes to battle. We first see that this is Jesus' purpose in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In Genesis 3, God has created everything perfect in Genesis 1 and 2. Sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3. And then what we start to see is just the effects of sin. Then immediately in Genesis chapter 4, the family unit is killing each other. Like sin just begins to spiral it all down. And in Genesis chapter 3, God delivers the punishment for sin. And he tells them exactly what's going to happen. In Genesis 3.15, God looks directly at the serpent. He looks directly at Satan. And he tells him, this is the punishment. And Genesis 3.15 says this. that he says, God says, I'm going to put enmity. That's a word that means combat. Between you and the woman between her offspring and yours, meaning this, there's gonna be combat for the rest of time between mankind and evil, between mankind and Satan, and that's what you and I face today. We see it throughout the pages of scripture and throughout the the pages of our history books. We see this fight taking place between mankind and evil. But then Genesis 3.15 gets very specific, and it's not talking broadly anymore. It says capital H, he, Right? It's pointing to a specific person. It says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What's that talking about? That is pointing us directly to the cross of Jesus. That on the cross, Satan is going to strike his heel. Satan is going to put a hurting on Jesus. He's going to think that he won. But Jesus, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, is going to flat crush his head. And that's what happens. That's what happens on the cross. That's where this story is headed. That the one and only Son of God came to die for the sins of the world, and in doing so, he defeats death with death. He straight flattens Satan's head. So I told you whenever we started that how you start matters. So the Star Wars Conversation. If you, if, you, if you go back to that, George Lucas, the writer of Star Wars, he has said that the entire story of Star Wars is a story about Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader. It's his story. And here, the writer of Mark, Mark wants you to know that this whole book is about Jesus. And I would say that the entire Bible is all about Jesus. That's, that's the point. Mark wants you to have a clear picture from the get-go. As we enter into this series, he wants you to know who Jesus is so that you can orient your entire life around him. That he is. He's the promised one. He is the, the son of God who, who lays down his life. And when he does, he is the champion in battle. That's who Jesus is. And what I would say is, in response, how you start with Jesus matters. How do you respond to him? Do you have a relationship with this Jesus this morning? The invitation of the gospel is that you can. You can know him, not just as a distant ancient figure, or not just as words on a page, but you can know him intimately in relationship. 
His cross paid the way. His resurrection sealed the deal. And scripture says, if you just confess him as Lord, trust him, then you will be saved. That's the offer to you. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.